Turn in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning because we're going to talk about two important ordinances in the church. So let's pray. Lord, thank you today for the word of God. Alive, living, able, Lord God, to discern to the very thought and intent of a person's heart. And we ask, Lord, that we would come uh, with uh, humble attitudes to let the word of God dwell in us, speak to us, shape us, and mold us into the Lord Jesus Christ image, empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled with joy and grace. Bless your people, Lord, as they hear the word of God Holy Spirit, we pray that it will uh, bring fruit and uh, help me, I pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, To him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So we are going through the book of Acts. For those of you that are visiting with us today, uh, we simply teach the Bible simply, and we go through a book of the Bible, uh, one chapter, one verse at a time, because it's important to hear what God's saying, not what man is saying. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. So just to kind of give a little context, uh, Paul has spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth uh, where he had met Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, They were former tent makers uh, and they became a gospel team in the city of Corinth. And when the ministry was wrapped up there, uh, Paul took... uh, Priscilla and Aquila with him, and they stopped uh, across the sea in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and uh, the people of Ephesus wanted him to stay longer, but he wanted to go uh, to Jerusalem, and so he departed, saying that if it were possible, he would come back, the Lord willing. Uh, He did leave Priscilla and uh, Aquila in the city of Ephesus, And there they met a preacher by the name of Apollos. He was a man that was uh, anticipating the Messiah. And he, uh, much like these disciples in Ephesus, had only received the baptism of John. Uh, John the Baptist we're talking about. And so they explained to him more fully the message that John was actually bringing Uh, which was preparing people for the Messiah. And uh, Apollos became a great 
missionary preacher of the gospel, and they gave him recommendation and actually sent him to the church that they had just come from. So Apollos went back to Corinth, where he ministered the gospel in great power and might, for the Spirit was upon him. Paul then completed his journey to Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It is kind of the first uh, uh, Gentile church, and it became a great missionary church, and that is where Paul and Barnabas were first sent out on their first missionary journey. So he went back to Antioch, down to Jerusalem. Not much is said about the visit down there, except he got, went down, he greeted the church, he came back to Antioch, spent some time there. Then he traveled back in through central Turkey, which is called Galatia uh, or Phrygia. Uh, uh, is that how you pronounce it? Anyways, modern Turkey where he had planted churches on his first and second missionary journey. And then he came back to Ephesus where he is going to spend some three years. So chapter 19 is actually the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. So he arrives back in Ephesus after strengthening the churches throughout Turkey. And Ephesus was a port city. It was a hub for land transportation, uh, ranking with Antioch and Syria, Alexandria and Egypt, and some of the great port cities on the Mediterranean Sea. The population of Ephesus during the first century could have reached as high as who had Greek philosophy, Greek worship, and uh, one of the uh, things that we'll see in this chapter as we go through it is that they had a great temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, and uh, in... Uh, Roman language, it was Diana, and that was located in Ephesus. The worship of Artemis was also a great financial boom to the area because they had all types of little statues and things that they made of her and sold in the markets. So you had all types of craftsmen and people who basically made necklaces and statues and all of that kind of stuff of this goddess that they would buy and take back home, like a lot of people do today when they travel, go and buy trinkets and bring it back home and go, oh, you wouldn't believe what I paid for this. <laughs> well, whatever you paid, it was too much. Anyways, <clears throat> so Paul stayed in Ephesus for about three years, and it was a very influential city of wealth and power, great trade, very strategically located uh, for trade and commerce all through uh, the Middle East. Uh, from Ephesus, we know that Paul would write his first letter to the Corinthians uh, to counter the several problems that the church in Corinth was facing. And then we know that while he was imprisoned in Rome, Paul would write a letter to the Ephesian church, which is contained in our Bible, the book of Ephesians. So he comes to Ephesus and promptly uh, found a group of believers. Um, the Greek actually says disciples. And it says uh, in verses 3 to 5 that they were students of John the Baptist. They had basically followed John 
and had embraced his ministry and his teachings and had been baptized with John's baptism. Now, this is twice at the end of chapter 18 and now in the beginning of chapter 19 that we encounter Apollos, who had only been baptized with the baptism of John, and now these disciples in Ephesus had only been uh, baptized with the baptism of John. And so I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about baptism, and I want to talk to you a little bit about John's baptism and baptism in general. What is the origin of water baptism and and what does it mean for us as Christians? First, it must be understood that baptism, water baptism, is an outward proclamation of an inward conversion. That's what water baptism means. In other words, baptism is a ceremonial act undertaken after a person receives or accepts Christ Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. It is a public statement of an inward belief. This is usually done in the presence of a church body as a public proclamation of faith. Now, concerning the origin of water baptism, Christian theologians suggest that although baptism was used by John the Baptist, uh, baptism itself did not actually uh, originate with Christians or for that matter even with John. Jews uh, practiced uh, baptism as a traditional act of purification and the initiation of converts into Judaism long before the coming of Jesus. The origins of baptism might even be found in the book of Leviticus where the priests, the Levite priests, were commanded to perform symbolic washings or cleansings in water before they were allowed to perform their priestly duties. For instance, in Leviticus 16.4, it says, speaking of the priest, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Also in Leviticus 16, 23 and 24, it says, Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. And he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. So you see that there is this ceremonial cleansing before the priests were allowed to perform their priestly duties. Now, although the act described here in the Old Testament passages was not specifically called baptism, it does highlight how important and holy ceremonial and practical cleansing is to God. John's baptism of repentance followed this paradigm of cleansing. Although the final cleansing from sin is only available through Christ, John's baptism was a foreshadowing of that. Now, the significance of baptism as a New Testament ceremony is that as believers in Jesus Christ, 
We are baptized into his death. The old person is dead and buried, hence submersion into the water, and raised to new, uh, to a new life or a new walk in the newness of life. Therefore, we don't leave people down. We pull them up. I've only lost two so far. <laughs> now, in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist mentions the purpose of his baptisms. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, Paul affirmed this in our text today in verse 4. He said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him, Jesus, who would come after him, John, that is, on Christ Jesus. So John's baptism had to do with repentance, and it was a symbolic representation of changing one's mind and going in a new direction. So the people came, it says in Matthew, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Being baptized by John basically demonstrated a recognition of one's sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to follow God's law in the anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. All right? It was a baptism that was anticipating the arrival of the Messiah because John said, I am one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John's, with John's baptism, a person repented of sin and was ready, therefore, for the arrival of the Messiah, to put their faith in the Messiah or the Lord Jesus Christ. It foreshadowed what Jesus would accomplish, much as the Old Testament a sacrificial system did. It was just a foreshadowing of what Christ would accomplish. Now, John prepared the way for Christ by calling people to acknowledge their sin and need for salvation, and his baptism ready the people's hearts to receive their Savior. John the Baptist used baptism to prepare the way of the Lord requiring everyone, not just Gentiles, to be baptized because everyone needed repentance. Now, remember when the Sadducees and the Pharisees went out to see what John was doing? They didn't go out to be baptized because they didn't think they needed to be baptized because they were self-righteous. And John didn't have a lot of glowing words for them. He said, who warned you of the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Therefore, bring forth fruit, worthy of repentance. So when Paul learned of their baptism, he preached the gospel to them, and they were baptized again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. So Jesus told every believer that when you become a follower of me, you should be baptized in water to be a public proclamation of what is an inward faith or an inward work in your life. These instructions specify that the church is responsible to teach Jesus' word 
make disciples and to baptize those disciples. And these things are to be done everywhere, all nations, until the very end, till Jesus comes. And if for no other reason, baptism has importance because Jesus commanded it. Christian baptism is the means by which a person makes a public profession of faith and it is part of being a disciple of the Lord. In the waters of baptism, a person says, wordlessly, but in demonstration, I am confessing my faith in Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am saying that he has cleansed my soul from sin by his shed blood, and I now have a new life in him. One is not baptized to be saved, one is baptized because they are saved. Now, in a lot of Christian denominations, they say baptism brings you into the family of God. I don't see that in Scripture myself. I see that once you've come into the family of God, then you are baptized. So Christian baptism illustrates in a dramatic style the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ and our identification with that. At the same time, it also illustrates our death to sin and our new life in Christ. All right, so very simply, baptism is an outward testimony of an inward change in a believer's life. It is an act of obedience to the Lord's direct commandment that you should believe and that you should be baptized. And though baptism is closely associated with salvation, it is not a requirement to be saved. But if you are saved, why do you not want to follow the Lord's direct commandment and be baptized in water and make a public testimony and proclamation, hey, I'm Jesus' disciple. The Bible shows us in many places the order of events. A person puts their faith or believes in the Lord Jesus, they are baptized, and this sequence is seen as a pattern for believers in the book of Acts again and again and again. I believe that a new believer should be instructed in what baptism means and should be desired to be baptized in water as soon as possible. Uh, now for us, we don't have a baptismal tank here and the water is a little cold in the lake. But if you want to get baptized, I don't know if we have to fill up the piano, I don't know, but we'll get it done. Now remember in Acts 8, when Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, he preached the gospel, the Ethiopian believed, and as they went down the road, they came to some water. Notice, this new believer in Jesus, this Ethiopian eunuch, looked at the water and he said, well, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, if you believe with all of your heart, you may and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized them. Simple. And that, that's a pattern that you see all through Scripture. Now, in verse 6, after Paul had baptized them in the Lord Jesus Christ, and had explained that John was only preaching a baptism of repentance and 
foreshadowing the arrival of the Lord Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in water, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and now the men were about 12 in all. So now we have another baptism. They were baptized in water, Paul laid hands upon them, and it says they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They spoke in other tongues, and there were about 12 in all. Now, this is the same experience that we read about in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. They were waiting upon the Lord, and the day of Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And there they spoke in tongues, but it records that they were speaking in the languages of the people who had come to Jerusalem for the feast. And there was about 15 nationalities that are listed in Acts chapter 2. And they all said, why do we hear these Jews declaring the praises of God in our own language? Aren't they Jews? So here it just says that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. I don't know what they were saying. It just says that's what happened. And where the uh, scripture is silent, I find it's a good idea. I should be silent. So I'm silent. But we also see the same experience in Acts chapter. He preaches the gospel. They believe and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is the third time now in the book of Acts over a period of about 30 years that we're seeing this experience of the Holy Spirit happen. Now, the first thing that Paul asked these disciples uh, was about John. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that an interesting question from the Apostle Paul? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the Holy Spirit is God. He is not a force. He is not a bird. And he is not a fire. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And if you read the Bible, he comes as these things, but he is not these things in themselves. So when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. It's just a symbol of how the Holy Spirit came upon the Lord Jesus. So can we all say together, the Holy Spirit is not a bird? Not a bird. No. The Holy Spirit is God. He is God the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus is God the Son, and there is God the Father. And when we come into the family of God, we didn't get two-thirds of the triune Godhead. We got the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll ask you a simple question, and you should know the answer. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Of course you did, because you couldn't be saved apart from him. Now, that's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus came to ask Jesus about salvation. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's impossible. And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The, bl- the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, if you actually are a Christian, you have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you can't enter into the kingdom of God without this experience. Now, a lot of people mock born again, right? Oh, you're one of those born agains or born again. Well, mock if you will, but the Lord Jesus basically said, unless one is born again by the Spirit, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because that old sinful nature needs to be dealt a death blow by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus. And when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, at that moment, we are born again. The Spirit of God actually comes and dwells in you. And if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have not been born again. And the Spirit of God does not dwell in you, and you will not see the kingdom of God. And Jesus made it very plain in John 3. Those are his words. John said in his prologue in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, get this, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You must be born again by the Spirit of God. That is theology 101. And if that experience has not been your experience, you can come to church all you want, you can read the Bible all you want, You can even give intellectual assent. You can have philosophical debates. But ground level, number one step, you must be born again. Are you born again? Well, if you're not, today you can be. And the way that you're born again is you must give me a million dollars. And then you must perform good works and go live in Calcutta for five years. Then you must climb Mount Everest. And then you must show me at least 50 good works that you've done every day. No, just the million dollars is true. (laughs) Everything else I've told you is not. No, you're born again by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. The only thing that you really have to do, which is higher than climbing Mount Everest and doing a is slay your self-righteous pride and go, man, there's no way I'm entering into the kingdom of God by my own good works. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. And for some people, that's almost harder than climbing Mount Everest or swimming across the ocean or any other feat that you'd like to do to show God how good and how righteous you are. Not going to work. You've got to be born again, and you can't do it by any other way than putting your faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. And if you believe that, say amen. Amen. How easy is that? How easy did God make it 
for us to have a wonderful and beautiful relationship with him. It's almost like, it's almost like the best thing could happen that ever happened in life. You go to Ikea and you open the box and it says, no assembly required. <laughs> Pretty soon in Ikea, they're just going to give you an ax and tell you to go into the forest. Yeah, first you cut it down. And then you, yeah, yeah. Interfestor. That's Swedish for I don't understand. Toxamica, I know that. Thanks a lot. Anyways, you must be born again. Now, the Holy Spirit is the divine revealer in our salvation. Jesus, in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Don't you like when Jesus says that? Jesus said, you know, you can take this or leave it. I might be telling you the truth. I might be pulling your leg. You figure it out. I was listening to a national syndicated broadcast uh, on the radio last week. He's uh, actually a pretty good guy, but he was talking about Jesus. And he says, I'm not a Christian. I respect Christians. He said, I don't have faith in Jesus Christ the way they do. I don't believe that he is the son of God. I don't believe that I need to come to him to be saved. But he said, I do believe that he is a great man. And I'm thinking, man, you haven't read the Bible, have you? Because if Jesus was a great man, he's told great lies. Because he said he's the way, the truth, and the life. He said that I'm the resurrection in the life. And he even said, if you believe in me, when you die, you'll never die, you'll live. I go, what kind of great man makes those promises if they're not true? And I'm thinking, man, you, you, you've got, you got the logic of a cabbage. you got to read the Bible, buddy, and realize Jesus is either who he said he is or else he's the greatest deceiver that ever has walked the face of the earth. Now, Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And he does tell us the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Helper, capital H, parakletos, the one that's come alongside to comfort or help, the paraclete. Um, now, if I, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus is making a promise. Look at when I leave this earth and ascend up to my father, the disciples didn't get this. They didn't know what was going on. But he's saying, look at when I ascend, I am going to send someone else, and he is going to come to you the Spirit, the one that's come alongside to help. And listen what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. How did we become Christians? Because we were convicted of our sin. You don't become a Christian because you go, I'm a pretty good person and I don't need a lot of help. No, you become a Christian because the Holy Spirit convicted you. I'm a sinner. Well, who did that? The Holy Spirit did that because Jesus says right here in John 16, 
I'm going to go away, and it's good that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to send somebody else, the Holy Spirit. He is going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So apart from the Holy Spirit, we would never know that we have a need for salvation. And that's part of what the Holy Spirit does today. He prepares people's hearts as they hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit begins to churn and turn that over and begins to speak into people's lives and prepare them for the good news that Jesus died for them. In John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I believe that the Father uses that drawing agent, that drawing person, the ministry and work of the blessed Holy Spirit to draw us to him. Now the Holy Spirit does something else. He points us to Jesus in John 15, 26. Jesus again says, but when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. What is the, who is the Holy Spirit? He is the Spirit of truth. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he speaks truth. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he always testifies of Jesus. How can you recognize a work of God? Because the work of God will always speak of and glorify Jesus. It will never draw attention to man. It will never be about man. It will always be about lifting up Jesus. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to help us and abide with us. In John 14, 16 and 17, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. The Holy Spirit also makes us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as Christians, we're not left on our own where the Lord says, now look it, I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to go and preach the word. I want you to love people. I even want you to love people that don't love you. I want you to act in such a way that when people see you, they see Jesus in you. Well, I got news for you. You can't do that on your own power. The only way that we can do that, never mind do it, the only way that I would even have a desire to do it is because the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And that's exactly what Galatians 5, and 23 says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Holy Spirit looks like dwelling in a believer. Does that mean that we've arrived? No. Does that mean that we fall short? Yes. But that is the desire of the Holy Spirit working in us. There's always a desire to conform to being like Jesus. When somebody claims to be a Christian and their lifestyle and their words is totally opposite of godliness and Christ-likeness, you have to scratch your head and go, I don't think that's the Spirit of Christ. I don't think that's the Holy Spirit that's saying that to you. Because the fruit of the Spirit 
tells me what it looks like. Love and joy and peace, long-suffering. Long-suffering is a word for suffering long. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When I meet people who have trouble in their marriages, I take them to this scripture and I go, what part don't you get? Why are you fighting with each other? Why are you showing this, the, the fruit of the flesh in your relationship? Where is the joy and the love and the peace? Where is the fruit of the Spirit if he dwells in you? Would anybody have trouble being married to this person in verse 22? Anybody? No. Nobody would have trouble because that's like being married to the Lord. Right? And that's what we want to yield to. You know, the Holy Spirit is just not a word in our theological dictionary. It's not just some type of intellectual acumen that we profess to believe and then we don't see his power working in our lives. He's not far away. He's not a vague concept. But he is the dynamic person of the Trinity who impacts our lives on every level. Now, some people at the very mention of the Holy Spirit I can just see their faces tightening up and they're going, man, have I signed up for a circus? Am I coming to a church where, you know, they're going to do some strange and unnatural thing? I don't want to be dead, Pastor Dale, but just outside the camp of dead would be comfortable. So in the church, we have saints who love Jesus, but they're scared and confused, cautious, divided, and don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit because of all of the abuses that surround the Holy Spirit. And so then we begin to label ourselves into different types of camps that only Christians know what these labels mean. Oh, they're Pentecostal, which means they're chandelier swingers. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, those people. Ah, they're Baptists, frozen chosen. They're going first in the rapture. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Oh, they're sensationists. The Holy Spirit's ministries and gifts are not for today. Oh, they're sensationalists. If they ain't jumping, they're falling. If they ain't falling, they're rolling. If they ain't rolling, they're hollering. And if they ain't doing any of those things, there ain't no church today. So where do we fall on this blessed and wonderful doctrine and person of the Holy Spirit? Well, in Calvary Chapel Kelowna and in the Calvary Chapel movement, our position is in the middle. We seek to have one of balance. That means that I don't want to be dead and I don't want to be in a circus. I want to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that's vibrant, warm, and beautiful, and trusting, and people can enter in and receive from the Lord all that he has for us. Optional, it is essential to living the life that God has called us to live, full of delight and desire for the Lord. I believe that Christians should be passionate about Jesus. 
Okay. I had a big amen in my notes, but... No, I did. I did. You know, when you're preparing a sermon, there's always three sermons. There's the one you prepare, the one you actually preach, and the one you preach to yourself going home. Man, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said that. And then there's the one, the one that my wife tells me I should have said. And usually she's right. No, Sandy doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. Sandy, are you here? Oh, there you are. I just, you know, I just want to head the horse. I just want to cut that off at the pass. Sandy does not do that. Most of the time. (laughs) See, the Holy Spirit is that person in our lives that basically gives us the delight and the desire to live for God. That's why people go, so you go to church every Sunday? Well, I don't look at it that way. I go, I, I get to go to church every Sunday. I, I can't wait to get there. Like, you read the Bible? Well, I don't look at it that way. I go, I get to read the Bible. Because for me, I'm a new creation in Christ. And now the Holy Spirit has realigned my appetites and my desires. So I don't see serving the Lord as a big burden. I wonder why I don't do more for the Lord. I don't see my money as really you give a tithe to God. I look more at it like I, I get to give to the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit reorientates a person from being a selfish, self-centered person to putting Christ at the center of your life, and you are going, Lord, what can I do for you today? And it doesn't become a duty or drudgery. A spirit-filled person is someone that has great desire and delight to be able to do anything for the kingdom of God, and maybe it's because I'm older, but I look back on my life and I just go, I have, what have I done? I've done nothing. I, I just go like, and I think as you get older, you, you measure your life and you look at your life and, and you hear the old saints of old and you go, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times, but when you get older, it becomes true because you go, nothing in this life's going to last Nothing in this life I'm going to take with me into eternity, only what I've done for Christ. And so when the Spirit of God is dwelling in us, he reorientates your desires and your appetites to just say, whatever I do, Christ is at the center. So whether you're, you know, a salesperson, you run a company, you dig dishes, you build houses, it's like Jesus is at the center of it and you offer it to him as worship. It's with the Holy Spirit that you are able to have a godly marriage. You want to know how to have a godly marriage? Be filled with the Spirit. 
You want to know how to experience joy in the midst of life's trials and circumstances? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to know how to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to know how to be true and faithful to your friends? Be filled with the Spirit. You want to know how to appropriate God's wisdom and God's word? Be filled with the Spirit. I don't know if I could even adequately explain to you the urgency that is in my heart about this passage. But every church must be filled with the Holy Spirit, welcoming the Holy Spirit, and having a passion and a desire to welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives. I don't know how to do that except by drawing close to God in prayer and praying much, saturating yourself in the Word of God, praising the Lord always, encouraging one another in the Lord every chance you get, as Paul said in Ephesians 5, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another in the fear of God. You realize that that big ugly word submission comes at the end of being filled with the Holy Spirit? you know that nobody can submit to any authority without being filled with the Holy Spirit? It just won't work. Submit. Don't tell me to submit. You submit. Who made you Lord and God and judge over me? Get out of my face. Filled with the Holy Spirit? What can I do to serve you? Well, I got too many notes and not enough time, so I'm quitting. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Did you guys have a special song picked out to close, or can we do the song that you taught us? Can we do that one? I love that song. Listen, um, if you know me at all, I don't play on people's emotions. I'm not asking you to generate a big emotional experience and sing, you know, just as I am, and then you stay just as you are. Um, the, the, you know, what God is saying to your heart is between you and him, but uh, you don't need to be afraid of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is in your life already. And he wants to reveal Jesus. He wants to reveal truth. He wants to empower you and give you delight and joy in serving the Lord. Amen? All right. Well, let's stand and sing with our worship team this song. And